Good afternoon. This is Freaky Trigger and the Lollards of Pop, the Internet's only sane collective. We drop science right on the floor and ask you to pick up the pieces. We're coming to you live on Resonance FM 104.4. It's just past 2.30 p.m. on Saturday, April 4th. I'm Elisha Sessions. In the studio with me are Mark Sinker, who has promised not to use the word problematize, and Marianna Parker. Today we're going to be talking about words of wisdom that are patently false. You'll hear from someone that, hey, it's better to regret something you've done than something you haven't. Well, not if you're an axe murderer, presumably, that kind of a thing. We'll revisit PJ and Duncan. That's not a threat. It's a promise and a whole lot more. But first, uh, this, uh, I believe, is Bodywork by Hot Streak. I don't know, but I've been told. Music make you lose control. Work your body to the beat. Bodywork will set you free. Sound off, one, two, sound off, three, four, bring it on down, bring it on down, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four.
Mariana, uh, you, you were saying you knew people who chipped their teeth dancing to that song. Recently, I've met quite a few people, actually. Hmm, I think you're, uh, no, just try to get your mic level up here a little bit. Yeah, that's a bit better. That's better. Oh, that's much better. Yeah. <laughs> I can't help with a rhythm like this. I can't help but bang the Don't desk in front of us. Don't eat in the studio. Don't bang the tabletop. I like to flout the rules <laughs> of the radio, as okay. many people know. So, um, tell how much? How much did you pay for that? For the re- for that record that we just now, played? I just put the record on the turntable. Played. You you paid. I think it was on the order of forty pounds, maybe thirty pounds. That's extraordinary amount of money to pay for it's a record. It's a valuable record. Not many people realize it's got a fantastic iced tea track on it as well called Reckless. Oh, well, I mean, I, I know you know about I, it. I know that well. I was surprised that you knew about it. Uh, why is that? Well, because I, I, I always am trying he, to... Because you know nothing, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I, was, I, was, I was like a pariah in my old radio life for, for having this be my number one record of all time. Oh, it's a huge record. I mean, you've got, uh, you've got 99 and a half. By Carolyn Towns. It's you've, amazing. You've got uh, what I'm not looking. Shaka Khan. I'm not looking at the at the at the sleeve. By the way, right now. Uh, yeah, you've got Shaka Khan, but it's not. Ain't I feel Shaka for you. Khan. No, it's ain't nobody. It's ain't nobody. It's but, great. But but I feel for you had Ozone and Turbo from the movie in the video, Did as it? I remember. Yeah. Amazing. And I was always a little bummed out that that song wasn't on this this record. But really, it's it's being greedy. There's there's so much good stuff. There's it has uh, the freak freak show by the Barkays. Freak show on a freak show on a dance floor. Yeah, guys with guys and chicks with chicks. They really don't know. They just do it for the kicks. Hey, freak show, baby, baby, on the dance floor. It's this, a freak show. Everywhere I go. That's right. This is this was the era that had um, this. Like for some reason, I was associate Midnight Star, no parking on the dance floor with with this record, but it's not on the record. Um, the ice the ice tea track that you mentioned before, uh, Reckless. It's got some amazing scratching on it. Which it's the glove? The glove is doing the scratching actually. Chris, ice tea on the Chris mic. the glove. Taylor, who not much was heard of ever again, really after that, uh, as far as I know. But that, I, that, he probably just, got killed in a dance battle. Step in as we're talking about wise words which are false, wise words which are true. Make your body work. <laughs> but that's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Body work will bring you higher. That's in no, that's your body. And will, oh, will set you on fire. That's false. not true. <laughs> <laughs> it, it won't set you on fire. But make your body work. This is it's good a good advice. idea. It's a very good idea. Well, I had to buy this record again. This is the story. Now, when I was when I was an undergraduate, I used to have a cassette version of this, and it was my favorite tape. And, and it was sort of you know sort of getting worn around the edges. Now, just in case we haven't said, this is the soundtrack to Breakin', the movie. I think known in this country under another name, Breakin' In. I think it was called. Really? Yeah. yeah. But not to be confused with the sequel, Breakin' Two, Electric Boogaloo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, all sequels are called Electric Boogaloo. Guess now it. they are. <laughs> this was it's the, the first. Law. This was the one that set the trend. You yes. see. So you had the cassette. I had the cassette, and I loaned it to my. I had a girlfriend in college. Not not a girlfriend, girlfriend, but a friend who was a girl. But I loved her so much. She might as well have been a girlfriend. And Bro. she dated a guy. I really didn't like him. I really didn't like him. He was sort of my nemesis. And he. She made me loan him the tape because he wanted to borrow it. And she said, "Oh, give it to him. Stop being so annoying. Give it to him." So you I must gave have it really, really. And I knew. I knew as I handed it over, it was never coming back to me. It never did. And now I hear he's a tenured professor at Harvard. Yeah. That's how they, they all get that job that way. <laughs> yeah. So if, if anyone's out it's there. It's a rite of passage. You just know one of those tenured professors at Harvard's holding on to my break-in tape. They, can, they we, can, we, can we get a name here? or uh... Nevins. 
Okay. I'm sure he goes by <laughs> Professor Nevins now. Not okay. Profe- not not Jason Nevins of remix fame from from Long Island. But, no, uh, no, no. Andrew Professor Nevins, Nevins linguistics of, fame, I believe. Of stealing fame. Yeah, stealing breakdance <laughs> cassette tape fame. Yeah. Now, Mariana, you had some words of wisdom um, that you wanted to share with us that are patently false. And I think this song, Bodywork, relates somehow to these words of wisdom. Yes. Well, this is what Mark was saying, that make your body work is is, is true. It's true, but a lot of the ways that people think they should be making their body work or helping their bodies work better is often couched in, 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 in no truth whatsoever. And this is the one that really bothers me, is the idea that you have to drink. Well, how many how many how many cups of water do you think you're supposed to drink a day? How many do you think? What have you been told? Um, eight is what. Yeah, eight, eight cups. Yeah, two liters. What? Have eight, you? Well, eight eight glasses. Is, is eight cups two liters? That sounds like awfully big cups. Eight glasses. Oh, I have no eight, idea what a liter eight, is. Eight ounce glasses is sort of what eight I've, ounce glasses. And what's how much is in the glasses when they weigh this? Much? Well, eight eight ounces. <laughs> yeah. No, not the glasses don't weigh eight ounces. <laughs> oh, okay. The glasses hold eight you see, ounces. I of think liquid. there's a lot of confusion. Fluid in this ounces. Area. <laughs> Fluid ounces. That's right. That's right. Well, this is this is a thing, and this is uh, you know. The so, this, are you saying this isn't this is this is wrong? Absolutely, you don't need to drink eight glasses of water a day at all. Your body works just fine. Seven on its or own. Nine. It doesn't it doesn't need seven. Doesn't need nine. Well, the, the, this is the thing, and this this myth pervades even into the kind of highest echelons of of medical people because you'll still hear this being told to people by actual medical doctors. If you talk to a kidney doctor, they'll rubbish it. Most of them will rubbish it. They'll say, oh, that's not true. Your body yeah, knows but, how you know, to regulate the, the kidney water. Kidney doctors, they want a steady stream of people with bad kidneys. <laughs> a steady <coming>. stream. <laughs> As the urologist. A steady, steady Saturday clear, afternoon. A Saturday steady afternoon. clouded stream <laughs> of people coming through their... their um, <laughs> surgeries with burning, that aren't burning with the message. Yeah. <laughs> so obviously working. they're going to tell you things which are which ensure that the stream is clouded. Sorry, just to derail for just a moment, Mark. Are you suggesting that doctors have a vested interest in making sure that their patients if are sick? If everyone was ill, they would have to go and do a proper job. <laughs> <laughs> The, the, the no, I, actually, I think if everyone is well, if they would have to do a proper job. Would be a, have been a funnier line there. Yeah, but, well, <laughs> but possibly makes sense. <laughs> yeah, but words of wisdom, which are false. <laughs> yeah, good. Thank you, Mark, for supplying uh, an ever increasing stream of those. Well, uh, uh, the, apparently, the origins yeah, where of, this, come from? of this myth come from the idea that um, when people are on wards and they're not eating. They have to have a certain amount of fluids being given to them uh, in order to maintain kind of a good fluid balance. So the amount that you're losing through your wee and your poo and sweating and breathing is balanced by the amount you take in. And, mm-hmm. and, and okay, so everybody does have a limit that they have to have. Mm-hmm. But most people then think, oh, that means you have to take it in as pure water. But actually, as you know, as you know, when you eat food, most mm-hmm. of your food is mostly water. I mean, we're seventy percent water. Right? Not Mark. So your food. Mo- <laughs> <laughs> Mark just eats cheese, which has yeah, no water se- in it, apparently. 70% cheese. Desiccated 70%. cheese. That's right. It's me. <laughs> but, but apparently all the food that you take has as, as much water as you need. You don't need to drink any extra water, but you hear all sorts of rubbish like... Literally, you're saying that, that you don't even need to have one glass of water a day as long as you have I mean, uh, three square meals. Food. And, yeah. what, what if you like water? Well, the question is, do you feel thirsty? Because I probably do drink about two litres a day, and I don't do it because it's the law. I do it because... Well, it, there isn't a law. Yeah, exactly. It seems like <laughs> that suits me. And it does mean that I run in and out of rooms quite a lot. 
but you know. Ah, see, see, because you really don't need that much water. I mean, the the body tells you you need water when you feel thirsty. But That's I, your inner. Yeah, but the thing is, I like it. But but obviously, I like it. You know, I like chocolate. I eat too much of that. I like water. I drink too much of that. Is it? It's not a problem. It's just. Okay, I admit, I have a problem. I <laughs> How have much time of your life do you waste going to the bathroom? I don't feel this wasted. It feels like time well spent. <laughs> could you be using it doing other things if you didn't have to spend so much time I in could, the but I'm not sure that it would, you know, contribute so much sense of well-being. I mean, you, well, you, 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 you can habituate yourself to things, right? I mean, I... I people, it seems like a, there's this kind of modern... Everyone has to have a... A, a bottle of, of water. No, well, that <laughs> the iPhone in one hand and the the bottle of of, uh, of water that we just cost a eighty p. Right. Um, the, you, always an iPhone, it, which is a bottle. <laughs> of water. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but it you would do just as much good. But it, so, so all these <laughs> people ca- carrying around <laughs> bottles of water all day, drinking, uh, you know, constantly topping themselves up. They don't need to do that. No, mm. they just end up going to the bathroom more often. Mm-hmm. Now, if you feel thirsty, that's when you should drink. That's the idea. If you if you feel thirsty, by all means, drink. But if you don't feel thirsty, you don't need to feel like you have to top down eight glasses of water. Your body totally adjusts your water balance according to what you take in and out. If you take in too much water, you have to go to the bathroom every couple hours. You know, but you have, but but you have a nice dilute urine. Some people say that that's good because if you have kidney stones or something, that might help you. But most people, they just they just take the water and then pee it right out again. And it doesn't really it doesn't really make a difference. But it bothers me because this is the, this is where it really bothers me because we learned. When we're, when we're going through medical school, you learn all the symptoms of dehydration. So, oh, someone's dehydrated. How can you test? Oh, their mucous membranes are dry and their skin turgor is not very good and they might have a decreased jugular venous pressure. And you learn all these signs. One of them, one of the signs of dehydration is not headache, okay? Yet the next week when we were doing headaches, someone said, oh, sometimes when people get headaches, they just need to drink some water and they're fine. So no, no, headache and water are not connected. There's no, there's no kind of medical connection between headache and water. But everyone always says is the first treatment for headache, oh, you're dehydrated. But a de- headache is not a symptom of dehydration. Well, unless, unless you're hungover. And, and if you have a headache and you drink lots of water, it goes away. That may not be medical Psychosomatic, science. maybe. Well, you know, yeah, the, but it still goes away. I don't, you know, all this talk about urination me- really gives the <laughs> name of that group Hot Streak, a whole kind of new... Um, I don't know if you guys knew, but Lisa Stevens, one half of Hot Streak, the group that did body work and then, then did nothing else afterwards, she sang background vocals on Holiday by, by, by Madonna and later on True Blue. But a couple of years before... Madonna hit the big time after her star turn and desperately seeking Susan. Someone else had already taken songs about himself to the top of the charts. Um, popular, popular, which is Freaky Trigger's ongoing feature, wherein Tom Ewing reviews every British number one, his valiant effort, number one single since the charts began. He's, it's worked its way up with the inevitability of fate to June 12, 1982. And that particular date belongs to Adam Hant.
Uh, yeah, we we just had a key change there. I think that means it's okay to start fading this out. Um, in his review on Popular, Tom gives this a seven. Is that fair? Eight would be fair. Seven is not fair. So what's the scale? Nine would not be fair. Right? Scale, well, scale's Eight. one to ten. So. <laughs> it could be a weird scale. I don't, yeah. know, I don't know. You never know with Tom. Yeah, it's only seven. Seven out, seven out of seven is great. <laughs> I, mean, I was listening to this song last night with a friend of mine. She said it's kind of it's kind of weak for a number one, she thought. That's because unlike rap stuff, it says don't drink, don't smoke. It's giving a positive health message, <laughs> which is weak. But I mean, would it, would it have been a number one if it weren't by Adamant? No. No. I, I, I don't think it probably... I mean, he that was his year, and there was a little kind of narrative arc of his arrival, Stand and Deliver, and his departure, which was... Unless he had any other number ones, which is entirely possible because I haven't looked ahead and have no memory. 1983. Um, this was his last number one, unless it wasn't. Well, this, I mean, you, you talk about this whole narrative arc. As an American, I don't know about you, Mariana, but as an American, I, this was the first time I'd. This song was the first time I'd ever even heard of Adamant. So, well, that's it, the best narrative I can yeah. get. <laughs> like, in, out. So it wasn't. I didn't have an idea of who Adamant was, and I don't know. Uh, this song didn't sort of fill in some gaps in my knowledge of who Adamant was. But Tom says in his review of this song that with this song, he moved from songs about being Adamant to songs about how to be Adamant. And I wasn't sure what he meant by that. But are, are you? Uh, I, well, I think I think that is, the narrative arc, I think, is 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 a kind of basic to songs which are about the self, which is that you're saying here I am and then part two is like and how did I get here would you like to be here with me would you like to be something like me and I think it is if here I am is is the big deal of you as a star where I really does mean the star Mm -hmm. as opposed to 
you know, songs in the 50s where they say, I'm in love, blah, 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 blah. The I really is the listener with the the singer expressing the listener's feelings. Mm-hmm. Someone handily beautiful and talented who can say what you wanted to say yourself in an eloquent and engaging way. But that changes I think it, at some it, point. it changes in the history of rock. It changes, I think, at actually a really precise point, although obviously... The monkeys, right? <laughs> it is. It's very... Uh, it's coterminous with the monkeys. It's, it's the Beatles. And as the Beatles are coming apart... John Lennon suddenly realises he doesn't enjoy anymore the thing that they had been doing, which was putting lots of pop constructs together in a way which everyone enjoyed. He suddenly decides that's totally like false and bogus. And the only thing that his job is to tell the truth and the truth that he knows is the story of himself. Mm. And for a pitiless decade... (laughs) That, that's what he does. His songs are all the story of himself, mm-hmm. like it or not so much. Mm-hmm. And it pretty much starts with the ballads of John and Yoko, although I think there's probably earlier autobiographical songs which are very coded. A lot of his songs were, were autobiographical, but you didn't need to know that to, in, to get something out of them and quite likely didn't know that. But at the point where he's suddenly trying to trash the other half of the Beatles project... It becomes just about him. You can't say... No one can second-guess the truth of it because, like, he was there, so he knows. And uh, and I think, it, it, yeah, it brings in this uh, kind of naked confessional as authenticity. Well, why do you think that this, this sort of thing didn't come about earlier? I mean, because certainly celebrity was just as huge in the 30s and 40s and people's people's uh, salacious interest in the personal lives of the of their the big singers and, and they you know. tell you know stars film stars and whatever had written tell all biographies and so i don't think it's totally absent but i think but you didn't get songs about it you didn't get songs about uh, i mean frank, well, the, frank sinatra had my way which was sort of as close as it got i feel like but it's um, not written by him no <laughs> and I think that part of the energy of that the, the Beatles had released in the world was the idea that actually a strength of what they did was that they wrote their own songs, whereas the structure of the industry before that had tended to be division of labour, that the performer was good at on stage and the writer was good at giving them the material to perform. And that although there were people who did both and always had been, it made sense in most cases to bring you know, the talents together into something bigger than the whole. And what Rock introduced was quite an unusual uh, ethic, which was that it was better to produce your... produce in the, you know, general sense, produce your own material. You wrote your mm-hmm. songs, you performed them because you knew how to. You had control of the whole situation. I think what's, one of the interesting things now is that I mean this, the idea of singing about yourself and literally about you yourself as as uh, not even as the performer but just as a person is like is everywhere in rap music for instance it's like you know keeping it real every, well and every album has has uh, at least half the songs are about are about the the performer yeah. themselves but like but keeping it real the idea of keeping it real even that like Jenny there's like Jenny from the Block or I'm still Jenny from the block. Even that is kind of, I don't know, in a way it's not even about her. It's about 
a just sort of essence of realness that she's subsumed into or something. Well, don't you think it's just the, the – I think it's probably what Mark is saying about the change. When you had a group of people who were working on one thing, it, it seemed a bit – you know, disconnected to have one person delivering a message about themselves because ultimately the product was by a bunch of people. But all you have to do is go earlier into what we're talking about when we look at sort of writers who write their own material and publish it. I mean, they're the only voice. And you do get self-referential poetry and writing. I mean, Song of Myself. Mm-hmm. Or what is it? Is it Poem of Myself? What is it by Walt Whitman? I Song forget. of Myself. Yeah, yeah, Song of Myself. I mean, mm-hmm. that is about him and it's about how he comes to terms with, with who he is. But again, it's because he's the only person behind that movement mm-hmm. or behind that product. And so once pop could switch to something where, or once music could switch to something where you only had one person being the controller of all the product, then, then you could start to do that. Although, although, although now we're in a situation where we've got um, pop stars singing songs about themselves that are actually probably written by someone else. <laughs> but but I, think this, mm. I think this comes in very, very quickly. I mean, it's not actually all that long after the Lennon project which is insisting that he's in control. And he was an enormously wealthy and powerful man within the industry who was writing songs about how rubbish his life was and how miserable he was. And that solipsism becomes something rather resistible. And people yearn for, you know, the opposite of it, some sort of escape from it. Or they start looking more critically at it and saying, actually, what's going on here is no less manufactured and suspicious than the thing that he was reacting against. And I think Adamant is, uh, I'm not sure that I would say he was totally like the poster boy for the change, but he comes at the point where he he's involved in the circus around Malcolm McLaren. Malcolm McLaren is someone who put a manufactured boy band in the world, which was not about being nice, but about being nasty and just throws up all kinds of tangly stuff about who's in control who wants what, you know, do do the masses want things which are lovely or do they actually want things which are nasty? And all this stuff is is hurtling around. And, and Adam was the person who put on the right costume to jump in front of a camera and say, it's me. Um, speaking, of man- <laughs> speaking of manufactured boy bands, and they're both <laughs> nasty and nice, um, here is uh, number, I think, number 29 in the Freaky Trigger Top 100 tracks of all time, released in 1994 with rhymes that would have sounded basic even 10 years earlier. This is PJ and Duncan, a.k.a. with Let's Get Ready to Rumble. Let's get ready to rumble. Let's get ready, ready, let's get ready, ready, let's get ready to rumble. Watch us wreck the mic, watch us wreck the mic, watch us wreck the mic. Psych. Let's get
be an AKA lover Give us the motivation, we can cause a sensation Give us the aspiration, we can cause a sensation Give us the girls top speed, give us the girls stampede Style and smile and everybody fuck Um, gosh, um, so... I don't, I don't understand how that even got into the Freaky Trigger chart. I'm totally mystified by because this. Because it's, A, it's awesome, and B, it's, it's bad. Awesome. <laughs> it's bad. Bad it's... meaning good. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know, Mariana, what your reaction is. As an American, it's really hard to not be condescending about songs well, it's, like it, Did they not have the new kids on the block? Did they not have other things that filled the gap in America? At this time, what year was this? 1994. What? Yeah, I know. It's like it's just crazy. It's like, it's like six years post its peak y- yeah. for this, really. Yeah. Well, welcome to England, <laughs> folks. You're the guys who came to live over. <laughs> I'm not dissing. I'm not dissing the country, but it's, it's very just hard rare to that, understand. I think. I, I've been here. Isn't this the entire history of of British relationship to <laughs> to American pop culture? It's like we do it late in here's, a really weird and lame way. Here, here, here's what. Here, Here's what here's what I don't get about that song. Um, the the chorus or the sort of bridge up to the chorus says we're gonna something like we're gonna rock the mic, we're gonna rock the mic, we're gonna rock the mic. Psych. Psych. Like we're actually not, <laughs> not gonna, gonna rock, rock the, the mic. mic. Yeah. <laughs> it's very knowing, isn't it? Yeah. Very very self aware. Yeah. <laughs> How do you, when they woke up in the morning and got ready for the day that they were gonna, you know, really record that song, and they were brushing your teeth? Do you think they sort of looked in their own eyes and saw <laughs> saw their irises sort of expand as they realized they were selling themselves <laughs> to the devil or something? It's, it seems like it would have been a dark day. Sort of like Ice T describes in his in his album Home Invasion when he says, "How did how did, for all the you know rap stars who went pop? How does it feel to wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and realize that you're a and then I can't say that part, but yeah. iced tea, it always comes back to iced tea. Well, but, well, of course, they don't look in the mirror. They look in each other's eyes. Yes, which is they're the same I thing like as looking in a mirror because they're the same Nobody person. Nobody can tell right? them apart. Now, so these two guys are like television them. presenters now. They're television presenters. Oh. Did, were they television presenters before this, this song or did they um, start I'm as... I'm not terribly good on the actual precise chronology of Ant and Dec, but they started in a soap opera called Biker's Grove, oh. which is... And they were teenage, you know, whatever, and... Bikers Grove is set in a, um, a, a utopian. No, it's a it's a housing estate which in where the north the, of the arch- in the north of England, I think in Newcastle, where the architecture is by some visionary socialist architect, and uh, it's a sort of amazingly exciting up a hill. And uh, I don't think that actually featured very much in the soap opera, but I never watched a single episode because <laughs> I thought it was about bikers. <laughs> I've, I've met a lot of people sort of of my generation here in London so what am I 30 yes so people my age definitely r- r- saying that Bikers Grove was hugely influential on them and I think this is why it, this is where it must remind me of the USA program Kids Incorporated mm. which you haven't seen but no. was basically a group of kids in some sort of bizarre school or building and they did come out with uh, songs I guess it must be like High School Musical which I haven't seen uh, actually seen but I think it's that similar idea, and it just spawns the worst, worst Est sort of is what you, the word you're looking for. Worstest <laughs> music of all time ever. Um, Rumble is spelled with an H. 
Is it spelled with a, an H, like a rumba? Rumble. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if there, that's a rumba beat on that song. I, I don't think so. I don't think it is either. <laughs> but it, is, is it is it is it um, the same time as Who Let the Dogs Out? No. Is that not much the, later? Who, yes. Oh yeah, Who Let the Dogs Out was a good 2003. No, something like that. I swear I heard it in 2000. Maybe at 2000, least. 2000, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. I don't remember. No, this is far precedes that. Why, why do you ask? It just kind of has the same vibe. Let's get rid of Rumble. <laughs> who Let the Dogs Out? Yeah. I played at the same event. Right. Okay. Um, <laughs> I would come to that. <laughs> yeah, now, you, now, back to words of wisdom. You often hear that, that good music and good art flourishes in bad economic times. And we kind of hit on this uh, a couple of three weeks ago on this show. Mark felt that we didn't really get to the bottom of it. Uh, so I want to return with no promises that we will get to the bottom <laughs> of anything um, or the top or the sides. But um, is is, is that is that hogwash? Is that true? Is there a kernel of tr is there a sublieutenant of I, truth somewhere in there? I believe the saying that you're looking for is the phrase "poverty is the mother of invention." Ah, indeed, yeah, that's yeah, the phrase, that and that's really where is. that's where it's coming from. This idea that without much to do, or when times are looking bleak and you don't have many resources, making something like "Let's Get Ready to Rumble" <laughs> probably wouldn't be funded. <laughs> you know, people find other things to do. Find other ways to make it. Yeah, well, it seems plausible other on the face of it. Their time. Um, yeah, I, I just think. I mean, there's two things. One is the problem that prosperity is is a relative term within a society, as opposed to an absolute term describing the whole society. Yes. So that, so that when you say prosperity reigned, what you mean is these people had a much better time than those people. Yeah, and I mean, in a class-stratified society, I don't know if it even makes sense to, to talk about ones, economic which, yeah. good times and economic bad times, because you've always got, even right now, in the midst of this recession, you've got, you know, You kind of, of know who, it's good times because you can compare it to those people over there. And, you know, you say in a class-stratified society as if as if there were those all those other societies <laughs> which yeah. which we could look at and admire. I mean, you know, they're not there yet, and we don't know, actually, what the dynamic of... A, a absolutely prosperous society. Maybe they wouldn't need music. Well, what was your example of, of great stuff that's come out in times of poverty? I, th I mean, this was the, the thing that that struck me when people were talking about it was that actually it just becomes very unclear what you're talking about as a time of poverty or a time of prosperity well, because I'll, every I'll, time is both. Well, that's right. But I'll, I'll give you an example. I mean, I think it's it's often said that okay, well, you know, New York in the mid seventies, just a horrible place. You know, you wouldn't. It's just terrible. You know, you wouldn't wouldn't want to go out at night. You know, kind of thing. But it was just exactly those grim and gritty conditions that that uh, that gave rise to this grim and gritty, fantastic music, punk music. Right? That's 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 what people people say. But again, I think the the grim and grittiness is a way of comparing it to its future when it became very much more expensive to live in. And so the kinds of people who like to have a lot of time to just do that kind of thing couldn't afford to live in New York anymore and had to live in much more scattered places so there wasn't a scene. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the thing that was great about New York in the 70s was that it was really, really cheap to live there and you could just have some day job which didn't take you much time 
and you were close to all the other people who were doing this stuff. So it's really not about bad economic times. It's about real estate prices like everything yeah. else. It's a correlation. And the correlation, the correlating factor is proximity to other people who have like-minded creativity. And, the, you know, the 70s in general, one of the things about it was that the gap between rich and poor in America was less than it is now. So the sense in which it was, it's not that it was mm-hmm. a less prosperous time or a more prosperous time. It's that the gap between the richest and the poorest was distinctly less than it is now and than it had been 50 years before. Regardless of what the overall... So, so the sense in yeah. which it, it, in some senses, it was less dynamic because it was stagnated, and in other senses, it was more dynamic because, you know, the, <laughs> those reasons too. <laughs> he said, not actually being an economist or knowing what he was talking about. <laughs> Mark, Mark, to get onto your uh, words of wisdom, um, the uh, well, not your words of wisdom, but words of wisdom that I think you'd like to talk about. It's often said that artistic innovation doesn't just come from gritty apartments on the Lower East Side in the 70s, but from the margins in general? I think there's a general belief, a surprisingly widespread belief, that, yeah, there's there's the sort of uh, masses in the middle, the sheeple, and there's the, <laughs> Can't the believe you edgy, edgy kind of innovators, and they they're off doing these amazing things, which the, you know, the mainstream and the masses copy and absorb and somehow neuter and spoil and that this is the the a truthful depiction of the dynamic of of all human culture and it the thing that is curious about it is that basically if this idea is the idea that everyone shares then isn't that kind of a problem with your overall position that if everyone thinks something there must be something wrong with it and, you know, I, it's not like I have a magic solution to this dilemma because I don't think there is one. But I think there's um, – well, no, I th- I'm going to turn the question around a bit and, and ask what do you guys think the mainstream means? What is the mainstream? Well, while we think about that, let's listen to your <laughs> – let's listen to your, uh, your – your, the track that you brought in, which is by Sun Ra and it's Sun called uh, – what's it called? Um, I can't remember either. Oh, I, I've got it right here. <laughs> Love in Outer Space. Oh, yeah.
Well, that's really nice. <laughs> Groovy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm no closer to identifying what the mainstream is. Um, but uh, this process that you described, Mark, of um, of the sort of classic uh, schematic of innovation happening in within a sort of marginal avant-garde and then being picked up by the mainstream. I mean, that's that has been that's used for business purposes. Um, yeah, it's the it's it, the funny you know, thing is about it is is it's the default position for critics, but it's also kind of the the. Um, the business language cliche, yeah, and they totally overlap, and, <laughs> and yet the critics are set or seem to believe that what they're doing is setting themselves in opposition to business language. But the metaphor that they're both using is almost identical, and uh, and that's the thing that I find a bit mysterious about this particular um, story. Uh, my friend Frank Cogan calls it the hero story, mm. and he says it's very very basic to. American culture, especially. Which why, is, why does he call it the hero story? Well, he says it's basically that that you know while all all were all society was marching in in its sleep in lockstep towards such and such a goal, these few people were bold enough to stand against blah blah blah. And he says that this is it, it's a pervasive idea in American in the American picture of itself, and I I think to be fair in the British picture of itself as well that the idea of the sort of um, bold, bolshy, no-nonsense, truth-telling, whatever, who stands against the the PC nostrums of, you know, blah, blah, blah. I mean, you just have to translate the etiquette of it ever so slightly, and it, it's an English story too, and probably lots of other countries as well. So why is this wrong? I don't think... The thing is that I don't think it's wrong. What I think it... Look, it, it doesn't step back. It needs to step back at, and look at what the whole system is telling us which is you know it's like the dirty secret of the avant-garde is that in order for the avant-garde to be kind of glamorous and effective it needs the system it's stepping away from to be smoothly functioning as the thing it's standing against it's not challenging the thing it's affirming it it's affirming the the thing that it's stepping away from and I think that the what it sounds like a philosophical debate between good and evil you can't know what good is unless you know what evil is (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You, you, know, you can't know what avant-garde is if you don't know what mainstream is. Well, I, I've, I've always sort of wondered at how the, you, you find this a lot when you have, there's a certain group or certain band that you really like um, that no one else seems to know about, and you're like, man, these guys are the best. You know, everybody needs to know about this, and it, it gives you a certain there's this proprietary sense that you have, and this 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 fun feeling that you're. You're in the avant-garde. That you're 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 aware of things that other people are not aware of. Yet, somehow, the greatest kind of validation comes when those same people bust into the charts. Yeah, if it gets to number one, if Ant Music gets to number one, then that proves that somehow the radical daring of resisting the conformity of whatever, it's one in the eye for oh wait, <laughs> and what you have is this constant. Um, avant-garde dynamic of the thing being spoiled by yeah by other people liking it yeah and and it's a very and i think you know i think there's a there's a base there's two basic kind of <coughs> human desires in terms of soci- sociability and one is 
you know, you want to be with other people and the other is you want to be on your own. And it's, it doesn't make sense to say these are contradictory. We both have both of them and we both have both of them at different times. And uh, I and I think that what's going on is this, the fact that you actually need, I mean, it's a bit of a boring liberal way to express it, but you need this variation in order for things to to channel along in the way that society as a whole seems to to stay healthy with is this related in some way to your other words of wisdom that we have only a a, a, a bit of time for um the that um this notion of um this phrase the reality-based community um and that that's kind of where you want to be i don't i don't know if you want to explain the 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 background behind that phrase um well i mean i mean i'm, I'm interested in just you know, you're, it's an American phrase from recent American politics, and I wondered how familiar you guys were with it. Does well, it I know the story, so I'll tell it. There was an article, a long article in the New York Times magazine, which normally doesn't have uh, much of worth in it. But um, this, one, <laughs> this one was this long uh, interview with – I don't think it was said. It was a senior no, Bush I, administration official. I think it was, he, it was never official. – it was somebody senior in the Bush administration, and and um, and at one point he tells the reporter that that um, the people like reporters uh, in the reality-based community don't get what the Bush administration is trying to do. He said, "We are going to act in the world and do things, and you all will are there. You and your reality-based community are there." And we'll just document what we do. That's that's and, our role. And the, the the argument being that sort of there were people of will and imagination who were making things happen, mm -hmm. and then there was this sort of slightly nerdy liberal community who were frightened of making things happen, nattering nabobs of negativism, and, even, and whose job was you know they were obsessed with what's real and what's uh, and facts, and that that. People who were only interested in facts were not going to, in fact, make the world a better place. Now, th this, this, when this article came out, you know, people, there's a hue and cry about this reality. He's disparaging the entire concept of a reality. This is obviously yeah. absurd, right? And, 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 and that, this phrase yeah. is still trotted out to just show how completely out of touch the Bush administration was. Is there actually a case to be made for what this senior administration well, official I, was saying? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read. Uh, a, a quotation, and you guys have to guess who said this. In art as well as in politics, and in some respects art is like politics, and politics like art, because both are art, a realist that was in quote, air quotes <laughs> for people who are actually well, listening air, air, air quotes to on, us on air. Air quotes, air quotes air, on the air. Air, air quotes on, on the radio actually sound like this. <laughs> so that's, that. Yeah. I'll do that. Okay, a Mark realist. Go. May only look at what is under his feet. Notice only obstacles, minuses, holes, torn boots, broken dishes. Then politics will be in fear, evasive, opportunistic, and art will be petty, eaten with scepticism, episodic. Do you know who said that? And where they said it? And when? Hmm. Mariana? No, I have, I have no, no guesses. It's probably someone I don't even know. Uh, you've got me completely. Uh, it was Leon Trotsky <laughs> in Literature and Revolution in uh, 1927, I think. Ooh. And I, I think it's 
it's because he's he's just about to embark on a a very interesting critique of a little realist school of Soviet writers, and essentially that's what he's saying. He's saying that you know these guys are very good on depicting the reality of poverty and misery and whatever, but what they're very bad at is getting the reader to think we can do something about this. Mm -hmm. I think he's confusing imagination and reality with what he's talking about, which is optimism and pessimism. And I think is that that's probably the the uh, underlying issue with the um, the reality based. Uh, reality ca- isn't pessimistic. I would take very much umbrage with that. I think reality is very optimistic. There's a lot of many. Well, I think, yeah, I mean that that would and so that was pretty much the Bolshevik line as well. But gradually they oh. became very. Uh, militantly over-optimistic as, in fact, reality was getting kind of less great I mean, or you could, not you... getting as great as they were saying it was. Yeah. So, But, but that's what the, the politics of imagination versus the politics of fact is that one side is saying, look at all the things we could be doing, stop being so negative. Oh, and that... the fact people are saying, you know, but you're not doing them. You know, what's actually happening is 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 really increasingly horrible and aren't we supposed to be pointing that out as well and you know the other guys say stop being so negative stop being so negative well it's, i think it's very it reminds me a lot of of uh, obama and his slogan um you know yes we can and that's a response to people who are saying hey yeah you know i know you want to do all these things but look at reality here's what here's what the deal you know is no money for schools there's no money for this no money that's that's reality you have to deal with reality you can't do all these things hmm. And he says, "We can, yes, we can." He's, and it's, I mean, the two are really not that that far apart. Well, I think I think you know either end of politics and probably in the middle too actually helps themselves to both sides of this mm, yeah. thing all the time. Just depending, depending on, on the, the you know what situation. the thing that they need to. Uh, and obviously, you can't make an absolute of either because it doesn't really make any sense. And is it just yeah? Maybe it is just the difference between optimism. And pessimism in the end, really. It's got to be. It's got to be. Obama's up optimistic, but he still believes in fact-checking, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so if you dissed him for that, you'd, you'd be saying... Do you think it's the case that um, American politics, politicians and politics, have, you know, there's a kind of uh, requirement for it to be successful that it be optimistic? Until the day after the election. <laughs> and then the requirement is that everyone it's hangover time yeah, I mean it's amazing if you look at the things people say during elections and mm. and the kind then the kinds of things they say the week after you know but it, I'm always told Americans oh you're so optimistic you're so optimistic over here I still get told I'm very optimistic and they think it's because I'm an American but I don't know perhaps what do you think Ameri- do you get that as well for being an American and living in London yeah yeah so maybe maybe that is a fundamental American-y thing then it's a, bunch, I would. it's a bunch of crap, I think. I, shit. <laughs> um, it is uh, getting on to be about 3.30 in the afternoon. That's well before the watershed. So we apologize <laughs> to any, um, any children out there who were torn away from their cartoons uh, to listen to this uh, if you were offended. This well, has been Freaky tr- what, well, so The Trotsky offended. quote was offensive as far as I was concerned. <laughs> I thought that was lovely. I'm just joking. <laughs> The, uh, it's not that they're going to be offended. It's going to be they're going to be horribly damaged. <laughs> you know, let's look at it. Let, let's look at this optimism. Well, anybody who has to listen to that end <laughs> of that song um, yeah, has is, already been damaged beyond repair. That's right. 
This has been Freaky Trigger and the Lollards of Pop, a Radio 2.0 pilot project of the Freaky Trigger Trust, which you can find more information about at freakytrigger.co.uk. I'm Elisha Sessions. We leave you with a man who's become something of a Freaky Trigger touchstone, lifelong Democrat Toby Keith with I Want to Talk About Me. about your church and your head when it hurts. We talk about the troubles you've been having with your brother, about your daddy and your mother and your crazy ex-lover. We talk about your friends and the places that you've been. We talk about your skin and the dimples on your chin, the polish on your toes and the run in your holes, and God knows we're going to talk about your clothes. You know talking about you makes me smile. But every once in a while, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I. I want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about me. We talk about your dreams and we talk about your schemes, your high school team and your moisturizer cream. We talk about your Nana up in Muncie, Indiana. We talk about your grandma down in Alabama. We talk about your guys of every shape and size, the ones that you despise and the ones you idolize. We talk about your heart, about your brains and your smarts and your medical charts and when you start. You know talking about you makes me grin. But ever now and then, I want to talk about me, want to talk about I, want to talk about number one, oh my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually, but occasionally, I want to talk about me. I want to talk about me. Talk about me. I want to talk about me. Want to talk about I want to talk about number one. Oh, my, me, my, what I think, what I like, what I know, what I want, what I see. I like talking about you, 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 usually. But occasionally, I want to talk about me. <laughs>